0: Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, The I, and I Think You're Interesting. This week, we're talking to a bona fide Oscar winner, John Ridley, who wrote the screenplay for 12 Years a Slave and won an Oscar for it, has been doing really exciting, really interesting work since the early 90s. He wrote on one of my favorite obscure sitcoms, The John Lara Cat Show, so that gives you like a sense of like... How far back we go. But he's been doing some of the most exciting work of his career in recent years. He he did a show on ABC called American Crime, which I thought was just stunning and fantastic. It ran for three seasons. And he also made a documentary with the folks at ABC News a documentary which you can now watch on Netflix. It's called uh, Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 1992. It covers sort of the context leading into the Rodney King beating and then everything that followed thereafter. It's It's a beautiful piece of work. He gets great stories from his interview subjects. If you're at all interested in that period of history, which is now... 25 years in our past Uh, you should check it out it's on Netflix and uh, he talked to us about that film he talked to us about you know some of the some of the things that as somebody who makes art that skews toward political subjects he talked about the role of art in politics at this point in time and we also talked about superheroes because who doesn't love superheroes so I think you're going to love this discussion Uh, stick around John, thank you for
1: coming. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So this is, uh, in, like, I watched this movie uh, last night, really liked it, really thought it was compelling. And one of the things I noticed is you have a real talent for pulling, like, just, like, a great story out of one of your interview subjects. How did you sort of cultivate that talent? And w- when you were filming them, I'm sure there's, like, all sorts of footage that you didn't use. So, like, mm-hmm. how did you know this is the moment I need for my movie?
1: Well, specifically in regard to how Let It Fall evolved. uh, Well, first, let me say this. Uh, Thank you, obviously, for the compliment about my storytelling skills. And a lot of that came, I started my career as a novelist. Mm. Um, The first book that I wrote, I was very fortunate to have that turned into an Oliver Stone film, U-Turn. But I liked the sense of storytelling where... In a novel, the pace is perhaps a little bit slower, most definitely, than I think, than in than in film, and certainly more so than in television now. Television now, there's a lot of room for slow burn, but back in the day, you really had to get to your point or to, to a hook for the audience. But novels, um, they're gradual. They really are about turning the page and about taking a journey about discovery, discovering the characters, discovering who they are and what they're about and their motivations. And that's certainly something I've always appreciated in storytelling and very much so with Let It Fall, um, even though it is very much about uh, very specific individuals and specific moments that change their lives and also change the course of Los Angeles history. Um, They're full people. They're well-rounded individuals, as we all are. And rather than going into this film and saying, this person did that, and therefore you as an audience member should feel this way. I mean, Mm -hmm. 25 years later, uh, emotions are still very raw for a lot of people in general. But certainly this film being about uh, citizenry, interaction with police, interaction with other neighborhoods and communities that we all have been taught to mistrust or distrust I think over-identifying certain individuals, it doesn't leave much room for an audience member uh, to have their expectations upended a little bit or challenged right. or show the complication of these individuals. We meet people all the time and they seem one way or the other. Then they'll say something or they'll do something or we'll discover something about them and their past. And we really have to sort of struggle. Wait a minute, that's not the person I thought I knew. And that's very much what we wanted to do with Let It Fall is to take moments that certainly for Angelenos, anyone who's probably been here for a certain amount of time, moments that they think they know or other moments that have really been ossified in history where we think, okay, this way about what happened to Rodney King or this way about Korean shop owners or this way about the LA4 who went into the streets of Los Angeles and just randomly beat people. Rather than just saying, okay, here's this person, here's what happened, and here's probably how you should think about them, here's just some people. Mm -hmm. And how does one think about those individuals after you learn about them? That was the decision for me as a storyteller going in. It seems to have been very, very effective. And that was certainly my hope, is that uh, it would be a film that has definitely a lot of factual integrity, Right. But also has an emotional velocity that once it begins, it just picks up momentum every step of the way, and a personal momentum because at some point you go, "Oh my gosh, please don't, don't be that person." Yeah. Or once someone begins to understand the style of to- storytelling, they start to realize this person I'm meeting at this moment is not a random person. They're going to have a very personal and probably very emotional story, and settling and preparing for that moment.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. In our sort of post-Michael Moore documentary universe, I think there is a tendency to look at movies about uh, historical moments or political movements and look for an agenda. Yeah. And certainly, like, I could try and read things into this film, but it seems to me like your primary goal is to restore the humanity to whoever is in this story, whether it's a police officer, whether it's uh, one of the, the LA4, whether it's one of those people... Uh, and it's, and like, I'm, I'm wondering how you sort of came to, uh, came to that idea of like, what prompted you to want yeah. to talk about this
1: in, in greater depth? Well, I, it started really uh, probably about 12 years ago, Spike mm-hmm. Lee, um, when I was still just a writer and probably still trying to find myself. I mean, I'm probably, I definitely was still trying to find myself as a writer. Spike Lee, who I've had the opportunity to work with before, and obviously he has inspired me and just filmmakers in general, mm. for decades, approach me about trying to do a a narrative feature about the LA uprising. So mm-hmm. just for clarification for the audience, you know narrative features, just your straight up Hollywood type movie, nothing against that, but right. not a documentary, um, not something that was necessarily based on fact, but based on um, based on real life incidents, the way you see at the beginning of a movie, you know yeah. based on something true but but created and with actors and all of that. So I had been in LA at that at the time of the uh, of the the riots. It was 1992. I'd arrived here in '90, and as a young person of color, I certainly had my opinions, and some of those opinions were based on being a young person of color. Some of them based on where I grew up and my experiences. Um, and the more I began to read about. The uprising and L.A. and this place that I had migrated to and things that I thought that I was sure of from what I saw on television and things that I learned in the research and starting to um, personalize that research more than just, OK, here's what was in the news. But here are these personal stories and here is more context. What I the, – the gap, the gulf, the ocean between what I thought I knew and the reality were wide. And certainly over 10 years, I mean, look, just as a person, I think I've come to respect other people's opinions and other people's thoughts and less about here's what I think. You know, certainly having worked on Red Tails, where it was the true stories of the Tuskegee Airmen or 12 Years a Slave or American Crime, one starts to realize, or at least I did, Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of opinions and I've been in the opinion business, but there's something about saying, okay, this is this really is not about me. And there's an emotion here that I couldn't replicate if I tried. So why try? And why not just take those perspectives, that reality, and put it in a space where we're building an apparatus for delivering empathy? We tried for many years to do that as a feature narrative. And all the things that I found really attractive about this story, the fact that there were no traditional heroes, the fact that There were no traditional villains. People did villainous things, but not everybody woke up and said, okay, I'm going to do evil. Mm. I'm just going to do bad. There was a cascade of mistakes, of errors of judgment, of people trying to do the right thing, and they turned out horribly. Or the judicial system not being impartial and not being fully fair. And certainly in the context of this film, it's from 1982 to 1992, we could go back further, but that seemed like a, a reasonable amount of time to put context for the audience and putting that, all of that in front of a studio, it's going to be a 10-year multi-perspective uh, film that is very gray, that uh, implies hope, but does not realize hope. Right. Great people in Hollywood, this, this city, this industry has been wonderful to me, but that was just a barrier of entry that a lot of people could not, uh, they could not tolerate. Yeah, yeah. But uh, about a year ago, so, I, you know, I have this uh, deal at ABC where I do television and producers at ABC News, they knew the anniversary, the 25th anniversary uh, this past April. They knew that it was coming up. And so they approached me about doing a documentary about this. And they didn't know that I had been researching and writing and trying to formulate this story for about 10 years. And I I jumped at the chance, but I said, look, there is a style of storytelling I really want to try to bring to this narrative, and are you cool with that? Mm. And they were absolutely supportive of it and embraced it. Um, There were many conversations along the way about, you know, how does this lay? And and kind of to your point about post-Michael Moore, you know, Michael Moore, the great thing is he really mainstreamed documentaries in a way, you know, took what Earl Morris had done and was doing and really brought this wider audience to it, but did, you know, it's like, You know, the way alternative music was for me in the 80s, you know, it was alt, it was alt, it was alt, and then it becomes mainstream, Mm -hmm. and then it doesn't quite work the way that it should. Mm -hmm. So, once it became sort of mainstream, the great thing is you have all these audience members who are going, hey, documentaries are not just this thing you sit and watch, you know, in art houses or on PBS. Um, Everybody can go to it, but there's this, became this sort of entertainment factor or pop factor or... Facts. I don't want to say they don't matter. I don't want to in- indict Michael Moore, but but they were less important than entertain me. Right. I think that's fair to say. Mm. Um, and we wanted to try to get back to a space where there's a level of cinema to let it fall, and there is a level of engagement to let it fall, but it is more about the facts than just pure entertainment. We hope people are entertained, but inter- entertained in a factual and emotional way rather than... Um, this is a, a a piece of sort of pop culture or, or pseudo documentary style. Right. So all of that to your question about Michael Moore and about the storytelling, it really was a marriage of uh, producers and news gatherers who who do this on a daily basis and are married to the facts. And for someone like me who has had the opportunity, I hope over time to develop a style of storytelling that engages, that unfolds, that reveals. And putting those two together in in a film that I think is very strong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, when this happened, I was I was a, a dumb white kid growing up in South Dakota. So this could not have been further <laughs> away from my daily experience. But, right. uh, you know, we always talked about it as the L.A. riots. And yeah. you look on Wikipedia and you look up this, these events and it's like, hey, there's a page for the Rodney King beating. The, right. Then there's also a page for the L.A. riots. You refer to it throughout the film. You have certain people who call them the riots in the film. But oh, riots, was, yeah.
1: uprising, rebellion. Yeah. Um, I have used riots. I I just said riots in our conversation. But for the purposes of this film, and and what I don't, a a caveat, I I don't want to have a litmus test for what anyone should be able to say or what they shouldn't say or what word is correct. But for the purposes of this this film and looking at something over a 10-year period and looking at individuals from a lot of communities, but particularly the black community who were trying to engage, who tried to warn people, um, tried to find ways to change the course of the city. Um, it, it, this was not one event, one night, one neighborhood. Right. This was many events over many years um, that affected many different kinds of individuals. Uh, for people who've never been to Los Angeles, you know, where Rodney King was stopped and assaulted up in um, Lakeview Terrace, that's nowhere near South Central. Yeah. Simi Valley, where the trial took place, nowhere near South Central, where Karen Tashima was shot and killed. In Westwood, not really near South Central. So I I think, you know, to your point about the Wikipedia page, and unfortunately just with history, you know, things get reduced. And people look at now, if they look at it at all, uh, you know, they call it the Rodney King riots, which Rodney King had nothing to do with. Um, They look at it and go, okay, Rodney King was beaten and Reginald Denny, a white truck driver who was pulled from his truck during the riots, he was beaten. So black guy gets beaten, white guy gets beaten. There's some kind of universal justice and we just move on. Mm. In calling it an uprising, we just want to put in front of an audience that this was not just folks losing their mind on one day. But this was a series of events and people did rise up. Now, what they did with it and how they rose up – Very different ways. And people can look at it and agree or disagree or say that method of expressing oneself is appropriate. That is not. Again, I didn't want to come into it and say, okay, well, this is my opinion and this is my thesis. But I do believe in reflection of the title, let it fall. Systems fall, people rise. And we see in this film people rising in the most humane ways and trying to truly look out for their fellow person irrespective of race, color, gender, and even orientation in this film, there are other people who rise up and just say, I'm, you had your chance. Mm. I tried to talk to you. I tried to reason with you. As one individual in this film says, on that day, the compassion line was closed. Mm. And not even so much about hate. It's just, I don't have any compassion. So if something's happened to you, you're on your own. Yeah, That is sort of what we want to get into when we talk about uprising, that this was more than just... Um, individuals who spontaneously, for no real good reason, just wanted to conduct mayhem. Right. Um, this is individuals over a long period of time that felt like there was no other means to get recourse or express themselves or even have attention paid to themselves. And even, by the way, as we get into in the film, the initial moments of this uprising, uh, people who were there said had nothing to do with Rodney King. It was about another incident in, uh, in that 71st and Normandy area. And all of that becomes conflated over time. We just want to separate a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Having lived here for uh, 10 years now,
0: I was I was actually, as I was watching the film, I pulled up Google Maps and, like, looked at where all these things were happening. It was like, oh, I've been there. I know that neighborhood. I've, I've driven past that place. And, like, and I had to realize, like, I always, I guess, in my head when it was happening, I thought, oh, it's all happening, like, right in this little area.
1: And it was all over. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Again, for people who've never been to Los Angeles, it's, it's so spread out. Mm-hmm. And just... Such a big place, and yes, um, in that Florence and Normandy area, and in, in that what was South Central, definitely that was the jump off. Um, but the the inciting incidents happened all over the city, and certainly by that second day and by that third day, you know, you you, you have to stand in Los Angeles to realize, okay, there was stuff in South Central, there was stuff in Hollywood, um, there was stuff in West LA, and start to realize, man, that nobody was managing the city at this point. Yeah. That's a large geography to to have no command and control structure. Yeah. Frightening.
0: Yeah, yeah. You uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned that you moved here after these events. I, I
1: moved here in, in 1990, so I moved here just before, before Rodney King thing. was assaulted, and then the the uprising was in 1992. So I was here for the good times in L.A. <laughs> the earthquake I was here for, I was here for all the great <laughs> When you look at the world of then and now,
0: sort of looking at where we are now, like what has... What has Los Angeles learned from this, if anything, and what is it still struggling with?
1: We, we had the opportunity to engage with a lot of different communities in, in putting this film together and also in uh, exhibiting the film. And there is most definitely a a better sense of community in Los Angeles. I think a lot of the stress points have abated. They haven't gone away. They, they, we have to actually be very careful because some of them are coming back when we talk about... Um, easy access to drugs. When we talk about kids who feel like they have no other direction or cannot get a sense of community except for being in gangs or being in people who um, are not positive influences, that still exists and the potential for it to be exacerbated still exists. But in, in dealing with the police, they have a better sense of their mission, um, certainly at, at the command levels. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I mean, look, there's, there are no two ways about it. Daryl Gates's shadow fell heavily over the Los Angeles Police Department and over the city. Mm-hmm. And certainly, even though Mayor Bradley was uh, an amazing inspirer, brought the Olympics to the city, really made Los Angeles into a 21st century city, there was moments at the end where he and the administration and the uh, police structure, they didn't talk at all. And as difficult as it it may be to get along with somebody, you've got to talk. So uh, better communication, uh, certainly more aware and community-driven policing, communities that are more vibrant. There is finally, finally money that is flowing into now what is South Los Angeles, not South Central anymore. But, you know, when money flows in, you have displacement. Um, You have people who are being moved out in favor of new people who are coming in. Um, that's a reality that happens in a lot of places, but we have to be sure that that in moving out, we're not just moving the problems or potential problems to other areas. There was a, a survey that was done recently. 75% of Angelinos feel like their circumstances are pretty good. Mm. That's a good thing. Yeah, But that does mean 25% of 8 million or so people don't feel good about their circumstances, don't necessarily feel good about the future. My math is terrible, but... 25% of 8 million people, 2 million, million, yeah, about 2 million people. That's a lot of people to be in distress. Mm. Um, so, uh, things are, are better, but, but I can't fool myself into thinking because my circumstances are good that everybody's circumstances are good. And by the way, as as, as many warning signs as there were 25 years ago, a lot of people thought, well, you know, we're going to get through it, we're going to get through it, it's going to be okay, and it jumped off. So, w- we have to be vigilant In all ways. People ask me, do I think this could happen again? I think it could, but I don't think it's gonna happen if it does. Same demographic, same way, same neighborhood. You know, we we, we can't look at where the problem was. You know, you, you gotta you gotta look at where it potentially could be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What you mentioned that the the police department in Los Angeles is more aware of some of these issues now. And we certainly have had conversations about police treatment of especially black people in the United States in the last five years, a lot more than we have at any time in my life, at least. What do you think like Los Angeles has Los Angeles, does Los Angeles know something about this that other cities could learn from? Or is it, is it that, uh, is it just something that communities have to figure out on their own because every community is different?
1: Well, I I think the latter really every community is different. Mm -hmm. And, And people would ask me coming out of let it fall uh, well, what do you think about Ferguson or Baltimore or, or Cincinnati or places that you know have have gone through or are going through similar distress? And I say, look, I if I had a an answer, a solution, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be running for office. All of these places have particular issues, particular problems. They deserve singular examinations. L.A. demographics, geography, um, number of police officers was very, very different 25 years ago. It's different now than other cities. And I don't think, and the reason we do not, and let it fall, try to draw direct comparisons to anything else that's happening is because we don't want to do easy math for people and say, okay, well, now you know what happened 25 years ago. Now you can go deal with Ferguson. 25 years ago is not now in Los Angeles. Los Mm -hmm. Angeles is not these other places. And the LAPD went through a lot of stress in evolving. You know, there was going from uh, what happened 25 years ago through a few chiefs. There was a rapid turnover. There was the Rampart scandal. Um, There were real issues. So it wasn't like, you know, in a week or a month or a year, it was the brand new, Mm. aware, engaged Los Angeles Police Department. They had to work towards it. And in in engaging with the LAPD, um, you could see the the, the demographics, the makeup of the officers was different. I think that helps. Yeah. Doesn't mean because colors or genders change that everything is going to be all right. We see that in Baltimore. Yeah. There are systemic issues that are going to remain, but it does help. It can help, mm-hmm. and I think that that is what's very different, at the very least, between now and then. You know, the LAPD was, you know, it, it essentially was one individual, certainly made up of a lot of people, but you could hear in the in the language and the phraseology of of the officers that there was a real point of view that was being bled down. And leadership matters. We, we see that. It doesn't matter what's it's, the LAPD, Hollywood, news organizations, right. uh, the hotel industry. Leadership matters. And there was a very myopic leadership at that time. And I do think there's a better leadership. And we see, you know, communities are more involved. That's the other thing. I mean, it, it, in all places, you see it. No place is perfect, but I do think Los Angeles is in better circumstances than it was um, 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from having watched some of
0: your other directorial work, I know your choices are very deliberate. So <laughs> I want to ask, like, I noticed that you would frame your subjects on the left or right side of the screen, kind of off-center. And I, I, I thought I detected sort of a system to it, but I don't want to speak to it. So I'm wondering, like, what were your thoughts when you're framing talking head interviews, which can be some of the most yeah. hardest <laughs> things to make interesting?
1: It, they they really can. I mean, look, there's only so many ways to to sit a person in a chair and mm. film them, and I've seen versions where... The focal length is very short, and mm. I don't like that. You see things where people put camera moves, and that you know it's just some of it's a personal choice. It's not right or wrong, mm. but in that framing and knowing that you're 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 basically going to be closer closer. What what is close and closer? What where where do people look? Do you mm. have them look right at the camera, slightly off camera, far off camera? Um, for me, it was the kind of I wanted the framing where there, where there was an intimacy, mm-hmm. but not an intrusion, where you felt close to someone, where you could certainly read their emotions, but it wasn't necessarily like you were talking directly to them or they were talking directly to you, Right, probably better to say them talking directly to you, um, but at the same time, you you were close enough to feel as though when things got uncomfortable, you had nowhere to go. Right and that's what i very much want the audience to feel that there was a in the in the early parts of the storytelling there's an intimacy because people are telling these really to me interesting recollections about where they came from um a police officer talks about him about growing up next to a motorcycle officer and that's all he wanted was to be a motorcycle officer officer kevin tashima telling these, this really poignant painful story as a, a japanese american how his parents were separated at the start of the Second World War. His mother was put into an internment camp here in America. His father had been sent back to Japan, but in Japan they knew that he was an American and they treated him very badly. Mm. Uh, But but stories like that that really color these individuals and make them well-rounded. So at first the audience is is close and, and slightly intimate because you're sharing these nice stories. But as the stories turn and some of them become painful... That sense of you really, you have nowhere to go. And I think we've all at times been in those conversations where you're close with someone and they're sharing something. The conversation turns and you just, you can't move away. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're afraid to move away. You know, moving away is going to change the dynamic of the conversation. For me, generally when people are talking or as you see life, um, if I'm talking to you somewhere, I'm generally either standing very, very close to you yeah. because we're having a conversation or I'm standing kind of far away watching you interact with other people, or, or something, whatever you're doing with someone else. Right. So, to me, in in, in storytelling, whether it's a documentary or whether it's a film, that mid space is always a little funky to me because we don't really stand in a mid space. Mm. Um, and also, the camera. And this is a little beyond what you were asking, just about no, the it's documentary. Fine. That's fine. It's great. I often don't put the camera, you know, high or low, or where where the eye doesn't normally go. Right. And there are times where I see in movies. I saw a movie the other day. I said, like, oh, it's really wonderful wide high shot and I'm like, oh God, I never do that. Yeah. And it looked good. Mm-hmm. But when I'm setting shots, I always just feel like, well, nobody really stands there. Nobody really, you know, sometimes you get lower, like a, a Citizen Kane shot. Obviously Citizen Kane is greater than probably anything I'll ever do, but you get those kind of low shots and they really have their own specific language. And I'm like, well, I don't usually lie on my back and look up at people. Yeah, And so that's a little funky for me. So there are things that one gets in there wheelhouse and feel comfortable with. But to me, I I want to feel a sense of reality where the camera is, that's where an individual tends to be. Right, right. Well, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't bring up that we're recording this on November 8th, uh,
0: 2017, which is one year after last year's election, (laughs) uh, which after that, there was a lot of conversation about can art exist, (laughs) (laughs) which always seemed silly to me. But I'm wondering, like, what were were your... Feelings, sort of, in the wake
1: of that event, uh, maybe the first forty-eight hours or something. You know, I'll be honest. I was, I, I was stunned. You mm-hmm. know, and, and I, and this, I don't care who you support. You, you're lying if you're not saying you were stunned by that election. Mm-hmm. There, there are very few people who I think mean, truly saw the way that it was going to go. People ask me as a storyteller, did it change the way I was going to tell stories, or did I feel? more strongly about telling this kind of story versus that kind of story. With American crime, for example, which was already in production at right. that point, and this, that season, our, our last season last year, dealt with immigration and um, dealt with the politics of border control and things like that, and people would ask me, oh, you're doing that as a reaction to the election? I go, look, no, these issues were going to exist irrespective of who was in the White House. hmm uh, or who is in the state house, or who's in the mayor's mansion. And the idea that our storytelling has to change, I, I think, is is fundamentally flawed. Mm. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I enjoyed the Obama years. I think they were wonderful years, but issues that existed persisted, and they're still out there. And had the election gone another way, there were going to be issues that still existed and persisted, and that need to be dealt with, in the public space. Um, And it can be dealt with in comedy, it can be dealt with in tragedy, it can be dealt with documentaries or drama, however. But they need to be dealt with because uh, entertainment and storytelling are what endure, Yeah, you know? I Mm -hmm. mean, you can go back 5, 10, 15 years, there, there are these stories about who we are that endure. And that's a fact. So we need to deal with these Stories in some kind of way or, or need to deal with life in some kind of way. You look back at Sullivan's Travels, which is the great story about it's okay to tell stories about laughter, yeah. but it's still about distress at that time period and about the penal system and about people not having voices once they're incarcerated. Wrapped in a lovely tale and a romantic comedy and a story about Voice and art. Right. So you can go all the way back to that, and it's still about putting things into the public space that have some kind of a cultural density in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Get Out. I mean, is there a better you know, example of a genre-twisting story about race and interaction and, and, and all of that? Um, So I don't, you know, it it didn't matter where the election was going to go. The stories that I wanted to tell, I was certainly going to try to tell. Hopefully I would have the ability to tell them. But I I do think it's false to say, okay, if the election gone another way, no, we don't have to tell those stories. Oh, there aren't going to be any problems. Everything is going to be good. Um, However one feels, this election, I think in particular, certainly uh, galvanized those feelings. But most of these presidential elections, I'm old enough now, they're all just pendulum elections now. It's yeah. you know, Nixon to Carter, Carter to Reagan, Reagan Bush to Clinton, mm. you know Clinton back to Bush, Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump. It's just that's all it is 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 just pendulums and swings, and within as that pendulum swings, are we are we moving through it? Is is it a pendulum? or Is it a guillotine? You mm. know, or is one is it a guillotine straight down? What is yes. that? <laughs> what's that one that swings and kills you? Uh, I I don't know. I I know that in the the Post story, the
0: pit and the pendulum. The it pit is, and the like, pendulum. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a, still a pendulum.
1: It's just a sharper one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a deadly pendulum. Um, no, I, one of the things I, I sort of thought about was that Trump ended up being like a good storyteller to his voters, and like the story oh, that yeah. he sold
1: of America was. But it's it's. I mean, that is at the heart of. I think, you know, certainly politics on a, on a smaller level, but certainly on a national level. Big country, mm-hmm. massive country, people from all over. You're from South Dakota, I'm from mm-hmm. Wisconsin. You know, it's reaching all of these folks. And most of these national politicians, I mean, certainly post Hoover into Roosevelt when the, the, the real age of radio communication and the fireside chats began, It's how do you communicate, and are you communicating effectively in the era that you're meant to represent? You know, Nixon with the silent majority, and, you know, it's hard to realize it now. You know, Nixon was the peace president in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, Carter was the aw shucks kind of, you know, government is, ba- and and by the way, first born again president yeah. at a time where people, you know, we, we don't have faith and we, we don't know where we're going. Um, obviously, Reagan, great communicator. Um, George Bush, not a great communicator, but you know, folksy. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at him now on talk shows. You go, oh, God, I miss George Bush. <laughs> you know, sure he started the war in Iraq. Yeah, he wanted to put <laughs> language in the Constitution banning same-sex marriage. But what a nice guy. And probably is a nice guy. I don't agree with everything. So, yeah, I, I, Trump communicated better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had I had a discussion with Morning Joe. They had their 10th anniversary the other day. And people were talking about, oh, we got to get the message out to the disaffected blue-collar white male, and I'm sure they have pain right now, but I'm like, that's not the problem is getting the message to them. Because mm-hmm. th- statistically speaking, they actually have it better. You know, the the mine workers and everything, I know they're losing jobs, but their, their base pay, you know, the, the majority of people, I'm not trying to get political, but no, that's fine. majority of people on, on minimum wage are, are single women and families in distress. Yeah. So I know there's pain in the coal mines, but, you know, you, you got it pretty good. But Trump was more... Uh, able to send that message. We're going to keep your job. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I'm not trying to relitigate the election, but yeah, he communicated more effectively in that time period. So uh, it's who's in the way. I don't want to say it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. it does matter. But what matters is what the what are what are we doing? Whatever you believe in, what are, what are we doing in the interim space? Right. You know. Right.
0: I Think You're Interesting is brought to you by Freshly. Freshly delivers fully cooked, prepared meals straight to your door. No more coming home and wondering what's for dinner because Freshly's team of chefs and nutritionists are here to save the day. You get to skip the shopping, chopping, and cleanup. All you have to do is heat them up and boom, your meal is ready to eat in just three minutes. To try Freshly out, go to Freshly.com interesting to get $20 off your first week. That's six meals for just $39 plus free shipping. This offer is only valid for a limited time, so go to Freshly.com interesting for $20 off and free shipping. Sitter, dinner, done. You mentioned American Crime, season three, and I I really love that show. And I remember when I wrote about season three, I was like, oh, it's one of these accidentally timely things. And I was like, but seasons two and one were also like really
1: timely if if they had debuted. Michael McDonald, who the other producer on that show, and was, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Michael McDonald. And, And I don't say this to try to you know, take advantage of things that were going on. But we we made it our mission to listen, to okay. listen to people. So the first season, we dealt with um, race and policing, and we started after Trayvon Martin, and we were filming during Ferguson, and we were on the air during Baltimore, and got the same thing. People would say to us very kindly, wow, how did you guys know? I go, well, this is what was out there. Season two, um, sexual assault, but peer-to-peer sexual assault, young males in schools. And... The week, and I don't say this with pride, I say this as a reality, there was a very similar incident with a team in Tennessee, and people were like, just aghast. Third season, immigration, border control, um, belligerence to undocumented individuals, things like that. This fourth season, we didn't get a fourth season, but we were, it was all about... High profile sexual assault mm. in businesses and industries and things like that. And it was not that we were smarter or better or sharper. We went on listening tours mm. and we always started a year early and said, What are people talking about? But is not it has not broken yet. And it's it's was wonderful in a broadcast space on a network like ABC, and I say that in, in the best possible way. Um, in a space where, where people are not interested in what other people think anymore. We, I don't, I don't want to hear what anybody else says. Nobody wants to hear what I say. But to have a space where we could reach, you know, in our multiplayer million people a week with issue-oriented storytelling was amazing. Yeah. was absolutely amazing. Um, and we took that very seriously. And so every year it was, what are the stories that are out there that have not reached a certain cultural density yet? How can we tell them in a way that's respectful? How can we tell them in a way that is is really oriented from those individuals' perspectives? You know, so much of American crime this year was in Spanish. It was in French Creole. It was in a, a not uh, largely spoken uh, indigenous Mexican dialect uh, because we wanted to use the voices of these individuals. That show was a rare opportunity. I don't know that I'll ever, working in entertainment, have an experience like American crime. Yeah. Again.
0: Yeah. The it thing, was special. The thing that it made me think was um we have a tendency, those of us who write about art, to write about it often uh, in the terms of it's politics. Cause that's I've fallen into that. Everybody I know has fallen into that. It's it's easy. It's like easy to be like, this says this and this says it stands for that, etc. But to me, like what I've what's crystallized for me in the wake of the election is that the role of art is to complicate, to humanize, to make you look at things in a different way. And I'm wondering, like, do you—when you go into a—you obviously have your own political opinions and things, but when you go into something like American Crime or something like 12 Years of Slaver, something like Let It Fall, like, how do you step back and be like, the role I have here is to uh,
1: facilitate conversation in some ways? I— you know, I think fortunately, I just got opining out of my system. I was very <laughs> fortunate, you know, probably about ten years ago. I, I I was very fortunate, and got into an opining space, and I got to write, and I got to talk, and I got to be on shows and meet people and press them about things, and they would press me, and that was all good. And I think it was a good muscle to work out, and also good in that you, you really got into politics and things like that. And, and I mean, just not generally. I mean, to sit in to sit across from Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. um. And, and, you know, I remember taking a van ride with Pat Buchanan. <laughs> Will probably be one of the, honestly, one of the most enjoyable experiences of my entire life. I, I could not agree with that individual less. Mm-hmm. But I've also not been in a space where somebody who disagrees with me completely actually would listen. Yeah, You know what I mean? And there there is something about having a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you, but they're that gap and they just listen, 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 and you talk. That was very interesting. But um, doing that for... Many years, and then getting into a space where you're sitting across from the Tuskegee Airmen, and it's not about you, Mm -hmm. and you're given a rare opportunity to share their story or Solomon Northup's story or the stories that we shared in American Crime or the stories that we shared in Guerrilla, and you start I, you you, kind of get to realize you're a lot smaller than the big thing and i do have my opinions and i can't pretend that all of my work is agnostic because i i pick this subject matter i pick that subject matter and we put it out in a way um you know where the camera goes or who speaks first or whatever you know that 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 is opinion but it has become not only easier but it's become necessary i think for me as a storyteller to as much as possible, remove myself or work with an invisible hand, insert myself as little as possible, but execute at the highest degree um, that I I have the ability to, but not necessarily lead with politics. Now, my politics are still, to a degree, you can't really miss them. You know, I have this graphic novel series right now, The American Way, about a black superhero in the 60s and 70s. I think you you turn the first page and you kind of get a pretty good sense of things that I believe in or where I lay. But within that also, uh, I, I I want to be able to have people's expectations upended. Mm-hmm. Or as you say, um, you, know, you talk about people walking away and they're, they're not sure how to think or how to feel. Or what is the role of art? To me, it's about asking questions, not answering questions. Right. Anybody who comes to the kind of work that I've been fortunate enough to do already has a capacity to think about something or feel something. Um there's i mean just even for me as a writer now there there are a lot less words in the work that i do you know american crime was you know 42 minutes on air 50 minute broadcast hour and we have big chunks where nobody's saying anything yeah Mm -hmm. and they're just experiencing so for me it's just it's how little can i say and i find that i know this is going to sound weird i'm a better writer when there are fewer words on the page yeah Mm -hmm. you know there, there there are many writers out there you're Sarkins or your mammoths they, they they can take words and they can just make a, a circus and just a performance and a ballet. And for me, it's just more about setting these environments, building connectivity. How is the frame set? And when those words do arrive, um, how do they matter? Yeah. How how do they matter and how do they connect and how do they feel real?
0: Yeah, yeah. You brought up the American way, so I'm going to ask you slightly more entertaining question.
1: Okay. Uh, you love superhero
0: stuff. Love them. Uh, DC, Marvel, kind of the classic superheroes. If somebody gave you a blank check and said, go make a movie, go make a TV show about this character, like which mm. superhero, which superhero is your jam?
1: Um, I would say that, and I'm trying to be careful because I don't <laughs> want to, get, people are going to misconstrue. There are a lot of conversations about certain things that may or may not be doing. So I just want to, the caveat to this is my answer will not reflect mm-hmm. or anything that I may be working on. This is just pure opinion because you ask blank check wise. Um, I, and he's actually going to be on TV, so I have nothing to do with it, but Black Lightning is, is coming oh, up yeah. and I, I grew up with Black Lightning. Yeah. So I'm very excited to see what they, they do with that. And then my favorite hero of all time was uh, The Question. Oh, okay. Do you know the question? I, I know. I know of yes. Yeah. So there was a version of him, and he's had many iterations. And actually, now he's a she. But there was a version of the question where uh, it was in the mid '80s. Dennis O'Neill and Dennis Cowan mm-hmm. did a version, and it was the most amazing graphic novel series. I actually, still have all thirty-six original one shots Mm, wow at home all the rest of my stuff my my mother you know like any other comic book collector your mother is i'm throwing this away (laughs) is it going to the garbage when are you gonna grow up so that's all gone but i have them and it was very gray the storytelling it was very much like a noir you know Mm. it was not you know he had no powers the first issue he gets beat up he gets his arm broken he gets shot in the head and dumped in a river for dead because he's just a screw up and that's the series is that you can have powers and abilities, but that doesn't mean good and right can happen. And it was set in this, I think it was called Hub City. And it was very, you know, kind of urbanized mm-hmm. and about real issues and not, you know, the the portal that's opening above the city, which right. has become now just this, you know, just look at your watch. You know? and okay, Five <laughs> minutes from the portal, portal's coming. And I loved it. And I loved what it was about. And it it came out around Dark Knight, the original Dark Knight and Watchmen. And I think it got buried a little bit in these two of the greatest graphic novels. You know, the time where they stopped being comic books and became graphic novels. But for my money, the question and its run is better. Yes, I said that. Mm -hmm. Is better than Watchmen and the Dark Knight. And if I had the ability to... Bring any of the any character in any universe that is not a John Ridley character um, to life, or that I'm not currently working on, or may or may <laughs> not be working on. The question is absolutely amazing, yeah. and and I, I you know I, I don't think he's ultra popular for a reason, and I'm sure if I did it, it would not be ultra popular either, which I excel at. You know, not necessarily popular, but certainly high quality. But the the complication of storytelling. Mm. The I mean, literally the question. He's not there to answer anything. He's there to ask questions. Yeah. Um, and that, by the way, you know, Rorschach in The Watchman was based on the question. Mm. And so it's just even even for you know Alan Moore, you know, it was just this. That's how that's how good the question was as a character. I mean, look, he, he obviously took a lot of characters and, and put them into The Watchman but um, that is a seminal character, and that's one that I would love to right. to work on.
0: Uh, you mentioned you, you were born in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, right? Correct, right. yes. And you grew up there, I assume? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about, like, being in Milwaukee and then uh, ending up here. Like, what was that journey like for you, both of knowing you wanted to write and then
1: coming to a place where you could? It was, you know, it, it, growing up in Wisconsin is great. Mm-hmm. Um, city of Milwaukee is great. You know, they're, it's unfortunate. They're... We were talking earlier about issues in uh, Los Angeles and how we can't compare them to other cities. You know, Milwaukee has a lot of problems, Mm. racial problems, problems with police and citizenry that I was truly not aware of when I was growing up. And um, it was just very weird to grow up in a small town in Wisconsin where the demographics were against you and have largely really good experiences— and then moved to, first, New York mm-hmm. to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue. And the New York I moved to was Howard Beach mm-hmm. and Bernie Goetz and Crown Heights and Freddie's Fashion Mart and Tompkins Square riots. And just thinking, wow, I'm in a, a major metropolitan city where it should be cosmopolitan, where I shouldn't feel my otherness, where it should all be everybody working towards, you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And there were just problems about race and interaction and communities and it got to the point i I didn't want to be there anymore the first the first time i ever got followed by police was i was with these two other we're all young guys young black guys Mm -hmm. you know i i feel like i'm the least threatening black man on the planet i'm the guy i'm at ralph's old ladies come up can you get the soup off the top nobody's afraid of me nobody and to have you know again, growing up in a small town and knowing you're one of the few black people, but never having a problem and being in New York, where you're one of millions and you're not threatening you're hanging out, and that's where you get followed for the first time was like i'm i'm I made a mistake, yeah, you know I've come to the wrong place um and it was a late in life awareness, but it was an awareness, so at that point, that was you know late eighties at that point, I was like, "Well, I've been to Los Angeles a couple of times, sunshine beautiful. Let me move out there because it's all good out there. So I moved there in, as I said, 1990, and that was a year before Rodney King and all of these other things um, that were going on, Jadu and uh, Karen Tashima. And and you realize that the you, you can't go in search of some perfect place mm-hmm. or because it's not, you know, small-town Mississippi, well, they aren't going to have any race problems, you know, um, the problems that can' exist anywhere. you know I'm saying things now that are obvious, but for me, you know 25 years ago as a kid going wow this is New York is not the solution. LA is not the solution. There's stories I want to tell, There are things I want to do, but they're things that I'm going to run up against. And by the way, then you go into meetings and you're the only black person in the meeting you know you're the only person of color you're pitching things i remember pitching a story and at that time janet jackson was really really big right. and it was a it was a female lead character and i was like we should have janet jackson and it wasn't about race it wasn't about something but it was mm-hmm. just and people were like well you shouldn't you know don't i wanted to put you know character you know in the description you know when you when you're writing a screenplay you write these little descriptions Trisha, you know, young black girl like this, you know, just explaining it for the reader. And they were like, well, don't put she's black in there. We'll Mm -hmm. just, we'll just, you know, later when it comes out, we'll assume that. I go, well, no, you're going to assume that she's white. Not putting it in there is the assumption that she's white. So why don't I put in that she's black? And then later on, you all can assume, you know, you can, you can think positively about maybe casting a white person. And that was really troubling to me, that idea that um, I couldn't, I was not allowed to cast up or put forward a character the way that I saw the character. Yeah. It had to be put forward first. You know, neutral was not neutral. Neutral was white. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. That 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 was the way it was. And if I didn't put in black or Asian or whatever, neutral equated white. Mm. And that was problematic because I wanted neutral to be whatever. So those are the things that I had to deal with. And those were the things, you know, trust me, fighting to have a character represented the way you want to represent it is a whole lot different than getting pulled over. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, a fight is a fight. Yeah. And that's a fight I've been trying to fight for 27 years now.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. You've written uh, books, you've written
0: for film, you've written for TV, you've, done all sorts of things what do you find to be like the strengths of each medium like what what do you turn to each medium to be able to tell certain stories for
1: books as, as we talked about earlier the patience um the reveals the engagement of an audience the expectations i think are i don't want to say higher as in better but higher as in um they are they engage more isn't it's not passive you're reading everything about it you know turning the page um taking the book out, taking it with you. You know, if we're still talking about a physical book rather than a downloaded, there's a lot that goes into owning a book, and that is a very wonderful thing. Um, Television now is a spectacular space. It was certainly good when when I started, but the slow burns, the shorter seasons, uh, the mass of television, just the variety of TV is wonderful. It's a challenge now because... You know, if the hype machine's not working for you, you're you're, you're done. Yeah, you know, and we we're very fortunate, American crime. You know, we we got we got hype machine, mm. um, but that's the one thing that I, I fear for the future is without hype machine, you're it's just hard. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but it's hard to find.
0: Yeah,
1: um, he's walking in a warehouse where nothing is labeled. Mm. Um film is there's still for me there nothing beats the communal experience yeah of buying a ticket hopefully standing in line hopefully I, I don't actually like to stand in line but you know there was that thing about you know patience you're in line you're chattering with your friends you're going in you get the seat i also miss picking out my seats i'm not a mm. big fan of this pre-order my seat and i get to the theater and it's not in the middle that that needs to end um Having that experience, walking out of the theater, a little baffled, a little, what did you think? I don't know. Having these conversations, um, very happy, you know, people like Chris Nolan Mm -hmm. exist. You know, to me, a lot of, Chris Nolan is the reason you go to theaters in particular. Um, How he makes films, what they're about, baffling the audience, uh, nothing beats that. And, and really only film in a theater gives you that. I'm very happy for Netflix and Amazon. I think it's great because different kinds of films are getting made. But I do like the communal experience. And I also think it's important that certain kinds of stories are proven out in box office. Um, there's a lot of conversation right now about rotten tomatoes and this and that. And I, I think that's false conversation. I think proven things out. I think for, for people who work in the studio space to have their program, this is what we're doing, and to be baffled you know that a happy death day or get out makes a bazillion dollars and this other thing we were building our whole slate around we gotta we need to have a meeting about that (laughs) i think those are very important so those are the you know the the big spaces by the way i you know i've done a lot of radio in my time npr and things like that more people probably know me from npr than anything else so that reach and that connect, that that is not done by any means. Mm. And that is, um, that was a wonderful space to be able to do pieces. Again, I'm, I'm not really in the opinion business anymore, but people would, you'd write stuff that you thought was just the most engaging, non-offensive, collective, good kind of stuff. And, and I would get hate mail just yeah. for days. And I, that was good because, you know, for me now, everybody's displeasure is sort of equivalent. So people get mad about stuff I meant them to get mad about, but also having people get mad about stuff I didn't, it's like, you just might as well dump it in a box because it it doesn't matter. Yeah. So that was, that was a really wonderful experience. And I really cherish that having, having worked in that space also. Well, we're, we're heading into the
0: end of the show, but, uh, I, have been thinking a lot about this as we sort of head into the end of 2017, which is (laughs) the big story in my beat has been, uh, the sexual assault, sexual harassment. Uh, scandals in Hollywood. And I've been thinking a lot about a David Simon quote I read, uh, the creator of The Wire, for my listeners who don't know, uh, where he said, people can change, but systems can't. And we're sort of looking at this Hollywood system that is rotten in a lot of ways in this regard. I'm wondering, like, what you think, A, what you think of that quote, and B, like,
1: do you see sort of a, a way forward in this moment? Well, I, I hope that systems can change, but I do understand what he says because we look at a lot of these allegations. There's, clearly, women have been disproportionately affected by um, this system. Mm. But we have seen uh, recently gender orientation, race, mm. who these perpetrators are, doesn't matter. And, and certainly it's going on in a lot of places, but you're talking about Hollywood. This is my business. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, in this time we have left, I want to address. Um, the system is, I mean, look, this is still the wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. And it changes every couple of years. You know, it was broadcast in films, and then it was cable, and now it's media and streaming, and a lot of money comes with it, and a lot of new players, and... You know, a lot of people—not a lot. Listen, let me let me stop for a second. I've worked here for twenty-seven years. The vast, vast, vast majority—I almost sound like a politician. I know it does, <laughs> but you're talking about in Hollywood. You're talking about carpenters and painters and dressmakers and makeup people and publicists. Um, you're talking about people who just work in variations of regular jobs, but in service of Hollywood. They want to work. They like what they do. They want to go home and be with their families. Then there is this other space. Largely, it's what we call the above the line. um, And it is the powerful actors or producers Mm -hmm. or high-powered writers or showrunners where there is a lot of unchecked power that is also fueled by creativity and insanity and not thinking like other people. And there's a space where that is regarded or tolerated historically for a long time and there's a space now where we've all got to be cognizant that there's a level of creativity and craziness that okay you bottle that up and that's all good and there's another space where it's literally dangerous yeah and being quiet and taking it um it 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 can't be that way so i believe systems can change i don't believe the system and and by the way this goes back to what you were asking me about with let it fall that uh, just because the police department becomes black instead of white or more female instead of male, that doesn't mean the systemic issues go away. Mm. Um, if Hollywood has the access that it needs to grant and it needs to grant more access, there's still the potential for bad behavior, for abusive behavior, all the way up to and including sexual assault. So we we do have to change who gets invited because I think that's going to diminish these opportunities. Um, when people feel as though they can turn to somebody and say something... There's more likelihood that they're going to be listened to, but the system does have to change. And a lot of that has just got to be, we can't tolerate bad behavior. And, and I certainly, I will put this more on Michael McDonald, our producing partner. He came into American crime and said, we're the majority of our directors are going to be women and people of color. And they were yeah. the majority of people in critical decision-making positions on American crime. were were women. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, okay, we do that. And the problem abates, but we believe there was an opportunity to be agents of change. And a lot of people do. And a lot of people work towards it, but it's a big industry, and so a lot is not enough. Everybody has got to work towards it, and then when the demographics change, we can't go, okay, victory won, that's it. Load up in the choppers, fly back, we, you know, we won. we got to be vigilant. It's, it's really hard, and it's very hard now. As you talk to people and you, you ask them, did you ever had an incident? A lot of people, a lot of people, are saying yes.
0: Mm.
1: That's painful. Yeah. That's really painful. Mm. We end every show
0: by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to going to throw those at you now. This is the one we have for December when this episode is going up. Okay. Uh what's the best gift you've ever got? <laughs>
1: Birthday, Christmas, whatever. Um uh, the the gift of my children.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. And then also I have this thermal cup that is pretty amazing. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. um what
0: uh what's like the last movie you saw tv show you watched, book you read whatever pop culture thing you consumed
1: and what did you think of it the the very last wow most um i mean the last i guess the Kinburns burns vietnam documentary would be the last last um i was proud i got through it yeah but mostly because they have this Passport thing they do now, where they shut off access after. Oh yeah, so you like got to watch it. Oh no, that's not true. Um, the last thing I, I I watched, and I just watched it last night, was actually the Apocalypse Now redo. I did watch Ken Burns was amazing. Mm-hmm. Please watch it. Um, but I went back and I rewatched the Apocalypse Now redo, um, which was pretty stunning all the way around. I'd forgotten, you know, there's so many lines out of that film. You know, from '79 through mid '80s, that was the Pop culture reference, Charlie Don't Surf, Yeah, Napalm in the Morning, The Horror, The Horror, I mean, just, it was, and also, finally, I watched, I've been watching these crazy extended director's cuts, I don't know why, because mm. they're long. Um, the New World, Terrence Malick's oh, yeah. The New World, which is like 3 hours and 45 minutes long, but amazing. yeah. Just yeah. amazing. Mm. I uh I watched all of the Vietnam War documentary in about three days. I do not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> three days or, or in total no, at in all. Three days. No, in three, three days. days. I, I had it's to, I, it's rough. Yeah, I mean it is. And just man, you just watch and go, wow, we really didn't need to to do yeah. that, did we? And uh,
0: finally, who is the filmmaker or film writer you've learned the most from that you've never met?
1: Oh, that I've never met. That's uh, I've been very fortunate because I pretty much met all of them. Um, so the only one I have not met, I don't want to say the only one, there are a lot of amazingly talented people who I have not met, but out of your, you know, out of the Francis Ford Coppola's, the Sophia Coppola's, the Spike Lee's, the David O. Russell's, the Oliver Stones, you know, I've met and worked with all of them. The only person I have not really met, that's the person who's still, up in Spielberg, yeah, I did get. I'm going to tell you a real short story. This was this was you know you look at that moment where your career could end, mm-hmm. and and you could walk away and go that's that. So first season of American Crime comes out, and um, first episode goes up, and I get this email from Steven Spielberg. I don't uh-huh. get it directly though, because nobody knows who I am. I'm I'm nobody. I, I am, nobody it's American. Nobody knows. But he sends he sends the email. To Bob Iger, mm-hmm. who's the CEO of Disney, yeah, wonderful guy, Bob Iger, great guy. He doesn't really know who I am. <laughs> he sends the email to um, Ben Sherwood, mm-hmm. who's the head of like the, the film entertainment division. Ben, great guy. He doesn't know who I am. <laughs> he sends the email to Paul Lee, who's mm-hmm. the head of the network at that time. Paul, great guy. He's met me like once. He doesn't really know who I am. He sends the email to Channing Dungey, who at that time was a drama, who doesn't know who I am, but doesn't, you know, she's busy, she's yeah. doing drama. So she sends it to Patrick Moran, who's the head of the studio, who doesn't know who I am, but he's busy, you know. He's, so he sends it to Nay, who is the senior vice president of drama development at the studio, who then sends it to Michael McDonald, who's my producing partner, who finally sends it to me, so I am this email chain, which I've kept <laughs> from everybody in the Disney company with this email from Steven Spielberg, who just said, I was watching the show at home, which I'm like stunned that he has time. You know, one of the the great artists of all time is watching at home. Says, I loved it. I loved the direction. Absolutely love the editing. Well done. Um, I can, and I only know this from memory because I probably sit and read it every day. <laughs> um well done for doing something like this on broadcast television. It is one of the most peculiar, unique, humbling, most honorific things that I have. And uh, one of those things where you just, you sometimes you feel part of this very special community. And you, you're, you're not in the middle of it, but you realize you, you're finally sort of part of it. And yeah. that that was special. That was very, very special. Let It Falls on Netflix, also available
0: for digital purchase. Uh, I believe American Crime's on Netflix as well.
1: American Crime's on Netflix uh, and on iTunes. They're both on iTunes as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, of course, lots of great work throughout your career, which people should and could seek out. Thank you, John Ridley, for dropping by.
1: Thank you absolutely for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Congratulations. It's the closing credits. You made it. Good work, everybody. I think you're interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. Box Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishan Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Krista Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post production are thanks to P3 Post. Our studio is the beautiful Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. As I tell people, when they come here, you can see the ocean from the windows. And right we overlook a doggy daycare, so you can look down on the dogs and see them frolicking. It's, it's a true gift. Uh, our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. It really helps us get the word out there. helps us get great guests. Even if you have some qualms with the show, leave those in review. I read all the reviews. Or you can email them to me if you really feel like like being direct and confrontational about it. I'm Todd at Vox.com. The podcast itself is ityi.podcast, ityi.podcast at box.com. And my Twitter handle is t-v-o-t-i, tvoti. You can also just, you know, tweet things at me if you feel like it. We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment or culture and media. Just somebody who I think is interesting. And until then, if you know where to find those those question issues that John Ridley was talking about, please, please let me know because they sound, they sound good. I'd like to read them. Bye.
1: the love Walt, law and order in yeah. Oz and then we had kids and the kids would start wandering in the room yeah <laughs> and you're just that's when it all yeah it all ended
0: yeah for sure we good check
1: great okay i'm ready when you are Oh, i thought that was part of it <laughs> was it can we not make that? i i think i'd rather interview you you sound <laughs> Far more fascinating with your X-File tales, than I think I might be able to.
0: Well, if I have, if I have you, if I ask you a question you don't like or want to stall for time, you can turn it back on me or ask me something. <laughs> <that> so, <to yourself. laughs> all right.